Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Did God actually say? Those are the words that Satan used, and you can see how crafty he is. He asks a question as almost like flattering your ego, you know, disarming you as though he genuinely wants to hear your opinion. If did God actually say? At first, he spoke to sow doubt and confusion as though God's word was unclear, as though God had not made clear. You may eat of all of the fruit except for this one tree. You may not eat of it. There was no lack of clarity, but uh, that's how Satan operates. He, he sows doubt in the word. Then he speaks with authority as though uh, his word were true. You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And so Eve was deceived. And Adam failed to protect her from this deception. And both of them took and ate and cast all of creation into sin. Death, destruction, hurricanes, earthquakes, lies, murder. These are all a result of fall of the fall into sin. Paul refers to this in Romans 8 when he speaks of creation being in bondage to corruption and says, for we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Satan's ploy to sow doubt and confusion continues today, of course. There are many people, smart people, who cast doubt on God's word. Did God actually say Christians even uh, sometimes can doubt whether Adam and Eve were real historical people. Didn't we just descend from apes? Listen, I know there's a lot of eggheads out there that talk convincingly about the theory of evolution, that people just descended from this process of macroevolution. They teach as though they have the authority of science behind them. Well, first of all, I want to say that there's plenty of equally smart scientists who are creationists and argue, in my opinion, more convincingly uh, in their explanation of how science supports a creator God and not by means of evolution. Secondly, I will say, don't attempt to square evolution or the theory of macroevolution, sometimes it's now called, with the scriptures. God's creation was very good. His creation was very good. There was no death in the beginning. But the theory of macroevolution requires death in order to work because the idea is, well, you have, you know, these, uh, it starts out with a less 
complex life form and then grows from there as, through evolutionary processes as, as the organisms reproduce and then and grow and die and then new ones come, then the ones that are the strongest survive and so forth. Well, that's totally contrary to the scripture because death did not exist until the fall. So Adam and Eve came before death. So macroevolution says the opposite, that it took death in order to create Adam and Eve. No, that's, that goes, this is sometimes referred to as theistic evolution, and it is the idea that God is the creator um, uh, used evolution. He's still the creator, but he used evolutionary processes to create uh, people. Well, that's in direct contradiction to the scripture, so it has to be put aside. But I have something even greater to rely on than the smart scientists who argue for creationism or or, or like convincing arguments that we can make from science. I have Jesus Christ himself and his plain word spoken with his authority, speaking of marriage when he says... Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? Jesus said that. He spoke of Genesis as literal history. He also spoke of Jonah as though he was truly swallowed by a large fish and then coughed up on the shore. Jesus said, for just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Sounds like Jesus talks about Jonah as though he literally was swallowed by a fish and then coughed up on the sea. How about the flood? Did Noah really ride out the flood in the ark? Well, did God actually say? Jesus addresses this too. And uh, he even threw in the confirmation that, yes, fire and sulfur did rain down from heaven also on Sodom and Gomorrah. Jesus said, just as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. But again, Jesus treats the history that we encounter in Genesis as though it's literally true and that this is what happened. Yeah, there was a flood. It covered the whole earth. Everyone was killed except for eight people Eight people that were on the ark. When it comes to the authority of God's word, have the mind of Jesus. And that is to say, hear the word and believe it. Did God actually say? Yes, he did. Now, this context is helpful to understanding the temptation that Jesus faced in the desert. This account from Matthew 4, which we heard this morning, follows on the heels of baptism. The baptism of our Lord. 
Recall that he was baptized. He was filled with the Spirit. And then he was led into the desert to be tempted. He fasted for 40 days, just like Israel wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. And yes, there is a parallel between Jesus and Israel. Jesus is what Israel failed to be. We'll see that in this text as we walk through it. After 40 days, Jesus was weakened and Satan came to him. If and you are the son of God, Command these stones to become loaves of bread. Israel was made to hunger in the wilderness so that they could receive manna from heaven. Remember that? They were grumbling, they were hungry, and God gave them manna from heaven to eat. Don't hear this question from Satan as though he's saying, prove that you're the son of God. The if expressed here is grammatically a first-class conditional if, which means that it assumes the answer that it is true. It's like saying if and you are the son of God, like that. Not quite like saying since you're the son of God, but a little closer to that. It's definitely not like a hard if you're the son of God. That's not what he's saying. He's saying if Sort of, you know, if and and you are the son of God. So go ahead and take these stones and turn them into bread. You can eat them. What's wrong with that? Jesus, there's nothing wrong with that. Just feed yourself. And it's, you know, you you have to wonder, well, I mean, Jesus did feed the 5,000 and the 4,000 plus. They were only counting men. It was very much a... What a, uh, uh, they just didn't count everybody, but there were women and children besides the men. So there's more than 5,000 people, and he fed them off of five loaves. So he certainly had the ability, and it wasn't wrong for him to use his divine power and authority to do this, to turn stones to bread, to feed himself. Well, well, to feed others, he certainly did, but to feed himself, no, he didn't do that. Jesus sees the deception that that Satan is is operating with. He's saying, go ahead and use your divine power for your own purposes and your own ends. And Jesus says, time out, buddy. No, I will fulfill the will of the Father who sent me. And so he says, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Just as Jesus submitted to the baptism of repentance, which John baptized him, likewise, he submits to hunger because he has heard the word of the Father when he said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Jesus submitted to a baptism of repentance for your sins. And likewise, he submits to hunger. Unlike grumbling Israel, Jesus, the new Israel, trusts that word that he has heard. 
In the second temptation, the devil took him to the pinnacle of the temple. And don't imagine here that the devil had horns and a red cape, cackled, <laughs> as he talked with Jesus. He's smooth. Oh, he's crafty. He's powerful. I mean, he takes him to the pinnacle. This is a, a Satan is being portrayed here as a divine power. And remember, he is potent, powerful. He's not omnipotent or all powerful like God is. But Satan is powerful. And he uses this power in what might even look like the divine use of power. He takes him to the pinnacle. And now notice his craftiness. He appeals to the scripture, almost like he's encouraging Jesus to trust God's word, Jesus. Trust the scripture. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you. Dot, dot, dot. Because I'm going to leave out part of it. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Satan encourages him to trust the word. But he did leave out something from Psalm 91, which he was quoting, which we, uh, you heard from the intro it today. That was our intro. It was, intro it. it was from Psalm 91. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. That's the part he left out. So he ripped it out of context and then left the part out, which is another popular trick that you will see nowadays. Scriptures ripped out of context, quoted in a way that, you know, basically says what I want to say. I'll go ahead and take a uh, gratuitous shot at The Purpose Driven Life also, that book, a horrendous book. Um, but if you read it, you'll see that besides trying to convince you that you're going to hell immediately if you don't go and receive a believer baptism, which Rick Warren does. He also says, uh, he also uses like 18 different Bible translations and he pretends like it's, a, like it's some sort of virtuous thing, you know, that that's how much he loves God's word. That, but if you look at the versions he uses, it's always the version that supports the argument he's already making <laughs> that he uses, which is really an awful way to go about things, you know. I got a point I'm trying to make. Now let me find the English translation out there that sort of makes that point so I can ascribe it to God. That's actually the worst kind of blasphemy because you're making your words seem like they're God's words. So Satan is, is leaving it out, pulling, out, pulling this out of context, and he left this out to guard you in all your ways. Yes, he's not... God in Psalm 91 is not encouraging you to test God, but to trust him, to trust that his angels will guard you in God's ways. The Israelites tested God at Massa when they accused him and Moses of leading them into the wilderness just so they could die of thirst. At God's command, Moses struck the rock this is the one where Moses was instructed to strike it. So he was, he was doing what he had been told to do. He struck the rock, and of course it brought forth water, and they drank. But unlike Israel, Jesus did not test God when Satan tempted him. He didn't test God, but walked in the ways of God, even unto the cross. Think about that, because that is where Jesus is heading. 
His life of perfect righteousness is leading him to the cross where he is willingly going to die for your sins. Now, the third temptation, like the second, reveals seemingly divine qualities in Satan as he showed Jesus all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. Now, how do you do that? How do you show, how do you show someone all the kingdoms of the world and their glory, like in an instant? Well, it's, it's powerful. Satan is powerful. It's almost a divine quality that he's acting in. <clears throat> And Satan said, all this I will give you if you'll fall down and worship me. Now, is this the way that God operates? Has God the Father established a sort of transaction theology, a quid pro quo? You know, that's the Latin expression, legal expression, quid pro quo. It's, it's actually a really uh, terrible thing. I mean, it's a violation of the law. It's this for that. It's like, you know, it's an exchange um, I don't know. I don't want to get into the legal aspects of it. Is that how God operates? This for that? You give me this, I'll give you that? Bow down and worship me, and I'll give you all this. Some people do feel that way. I mean, that's, they, they go through life, their, their Christian life, thinking that they're serving God, and then God is serving them, and there's this transaction that's happening. That's not how God operates. God acts first. God sees us in our sinful state and redeems us from that. That's how God operates. He's, he doesn't come and say, oh my goodness, look at, look at this person or look at that person. They're such a good person. I've got to have them in heaven. He looks and sees all that's wrong and says, I desire to redeem this person because I love them, because I love. That's, that's how God operates. He gives his gifts to those who do not deserve his gifts. And even, even our worship of him is born of a faith that he has gifted to us. We didn't decide on this faith on our own. That faith was gifted to us. It's God's doing. So the notion of a transaction in which we merit God's love is a counterfeit. God called Israel to be single-mindedly devoted to him. You shall not bow down to false idols or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Now, whereas Israel failed repeatedly in this regard, think of the golden calf, Think of the prophets of the false prophets of Baal or Asherah, the Asherah that they would establish, that they would set up. Jesus did not fail, unlike Israel. Be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Indeed, God's word is truth and life, faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. That's Romans 10. And we should use God's word for our defense. Think of Ephesians 6, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. But don't look at this account of Jesus and Satan, Jesus being tempted and rebuking Satan with God's word. Don't look at it merely as 
an example that is showing us how to wield God's word. We uphold God's word. I mean, and and it's good and fitting and right, and we should do that, and we should look to God's word as as our source of, of truth and certainty. But what's happening here in the temptation of Jesus, we must not convert into some sort of object lesson example where we are now to model Christ. And when Satan attacks with this, I'm going to attack him back with this word. Now, there's something much more profound going on here. And that is that Jesus was literally tempted by Satan. Jesus is the new Israel that doesn't fail like the old Israel did. Jesus is the Israel who who combats Satan and wins. He actually has a true, real victory over Satan in defeating these temptations. So it is not merely an example of how we use God's word to defeat the devil. It's actually the substance that he accomplished this, that he did this and he defeated Satan and Satan fled and the angels ministered to him. Unlike Old Testament Israel, Jesus, the new Israel was victorious. And in this, he fulfilled that which was spoken in Genesis 3.15. You know, this is the first gospel, what's called the Proto-Evangelion, the very first gospel in the Bible. It comes in Genesis 3.15, right after the fall, immediately after the fall, because that's how God loves us. Immediately after the fall, he seeks a way to make salvation. And he tells them, he actually tells Satan in earshot of Adam and Eve, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Jesus lived a perfect sinless life. His victory over Satan did not cause him to kick up his feet and bask in glory. Rather, he proceeded with his humble earthly ministry. He's leaving this temptation. He will be ministered to by the angels, and then he will continue on his earthly ministry of humility, of suffering, shame, and indignity that he doesn't deserve, but that we deserved. He proceeded to fulfill the Father's will, which was to serve others and to give himself as a ransom for your sins. Thanks be to God. The peace of God which passes all understanding, keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus.